clap. That's fine, I guess. Yeah, go ahead. That's very silly. Okay. Um, can I ask to start, how many of you here are students? Okay, a few. Cool. I was curious because we're so close uh, to so many schools. I went to school just down the street as well, so go doors. Uh, anyway, let me, uh, let me, where, how, how are we going to start this morning? Okay, so our sermon series uh, this semester is called Be Curious, right? And that we're looking at different interactions that Jesus has with people throughout the Gospels. And the goal here is that we would be a people who are curious about Jesus. And hear me, be curious about Jesus is very different than treating Jesus as a curiosity. Have any of you ever been to the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Gatlinburg? Okay, one person has been there, yes, a few, okay. It's a weird place, guys, and it's full of uh, curiosities, like things that you look at and go, hmm, that's really interesting, right? One of my grandma's favorite words, that's very interesting. Uh, that is not the goal with Jesus, that we would come here and that we would leave and we would say, oh, what an interesting thing I learned about Jesus today. No, 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 that's treating Jesus as a curiosity. We are talking about being curious about Jesus, like the way that you would be curious about a lover or a friend, someone that you're in relationship with, someone that you are desperate to know more deeply. Because what's true about our Jesus is that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We're not curious about him because he's changing. We're curious about him because his depth of character knows no bounds. And we're curious about him because uh, though he does not change, we do. And that what we can learn about him or take from him on any given day, uh, there's more for us because we are different people who need different things. That we're not worshiping at the altar of new, trying to find a new Jesus. We're coming back to the same Jesus we've always known and getting to know him more deeply. But that, that's what we're doing uh, this morning as we read this passage. And so uh, I'm gonna invite Emily up to read for us. And as Emily is reading, I just want to encourage you guys to have in mind the question, what, well, I, want to I want to encourage you to be asking, uh, what am I curious about in this passage? Just as, as, as Emily is reading, be leaning in and asking yourself, what am I curious about in this passage? Mark 2, 23 through 3, 6. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to, him, to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel 
with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. Thankful that because you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that your word is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Lord, we come to you as a people who are desperately in need of rest. I uh, pray that you would give it to us this morning through your word and through our worship. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what from this passage are you curious about? Uh, maybe you forgot that we did this a few weeks ago, but this is the place where you get to participate. So you can tell me, what is it from this passage that you are curious about? Was the guy with the hand a plant? Yes, some people think yes, but it's, yes. Thank you. It's a great, great thing to be curious about. What else? Who's this Abathar guy? Guys, I've been in small group a long time. I can out-silence any of you, so. <laughs> One more. What are you curious about? Yeah, why were they not allowed to eat these pieces of grain they were plucking on the Sabbath? I just want to encourage you, as we're reading scripture, that we would come, we'd be a people who are coming, uh, who are curious, right? Who are having these passages stir up curiosity in us. And one of the things I think we've got to ask when we come to this passage is, what the heck is the Sabbath? Right, clearly it was a big deal to these people, but we don't really have a context for it. So we're going to start this morning by talking about what is the Sabbath. And then what we see in this passage is that the Sabbath had become disfigured in the lives of these people. So we're going to talk about the ways the Sabbath was disfigured. And then we're going to talk about the Sabbath redeemed or restored. So if you're a note taker, those are your three points, okay? What is the Sabbath? Sabbath disfigured, Sabbath restored. So we're talking about the Sabbath and what it is. We have got to go all the way back to the beginning, which means going all the way back to Genesis. So I'm going to read for us Genesis 2, 1 through 3. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So we're talking here in Genesis 1 and 2, right, about this cosmic scope of creation. And after all that God has done, God stops. And when God stops, God rests. Why does God rest? It's a thing to be curious about. I will tell you first why God did not rest. God did not rest because he was tired, okay? It's an easy thing to think, and it's what a lot of people in that kind of ancient Near East thought. There's this part in the Old Testament where the prophet Elijah uh, mocks other priests of other gods, and he says, what is your God taking a nap? How silly would that be, right, if our God needed to take a nap? He, God is not like us. He doesn't need to rest like we need to rest. And he's not like all of these other pagan gods who needed to be sacrificed to so that he could eat and be satisfied. God was perfectly satisfied with himself. And that's what we see playing out on the seventh day, that God, when God is at rest, that God is resting in his satisfaction of what he has completed and done. That God is resting because he's satisfied but he's also resting because he delights in what he has made. So as God rests, as God is satisfied, 
that he looks out at what he has made and he's in wonder at his own creation. That he is delighting, he's taking joy from, deriving joy from his own creation. Not because his joy was somehow deficient before, but because his joy is so full, he delights to see it magnified. And on the seventh day, Adam and Eve had already been created. So what that means is on the seventh day, when God is resting and God is delighting, he's delighting in Adam and Eve. He's wondering at them. He is finding or deriving joy in some way from them. Do you remember what it's like to be delighted in? Have you ever experienced that? Like that's kind of the goal of what we hope happens on vacation with our kids, you know, if you're a parent. It doesn't always work out that way. That's the goal. Or when you go on spring break with your friends, right? The goal is that you would be delighting in the people around you. That you would be deriving joy from simply being in their presence. And so in the same way that God delights in his, in his people, he also is inviting them to delight in him. And that's the dance, the dynamic of the Sabbath, is this dance, this, this dynamic of delight. And what's built into that is a limit. That God is saying no to work so for the delight. That he's calling his people to say no to work, to say yes to the delight. And that is built into the fabric of creation. It's there in the, on the very first week whether you think that week was 24 days or huge spans of time, that's not really the point. The point is that it's built in, the Sabbath is baked in to the way that creation unfolded. There's a limit baked into it, a limit that points us to delight because limits, as Scripture teaches us, they, they are for protecting and amplifying life and joy. But what we also know from Genesis, uh, Genesis 3 is that uh, the after after kind of this cosmic creation of the seventh day, this delight, being delighted in, what happens? There's sin, right? Sin enters the picture. And what God has done is he's placed a tree in the center of the garden and he's told Adam and Eve, don't eat from it. He's put a limit on them. And he's put it right in front of their faces, not like at the edge of the garden, it's right there in the middle. And what God's asking them to do is, would you trust that this limit is for your good? And what Adam and Eve say is, no, we will not trust that. That limit is not for our good. And they eat of the tree, and what happens? They will surely die. That death, that sin, that suffering and pain enters the world as they reject these limits that God has put on them. And so what God has to do then with the Sabbath and with all these other commands is he has to command to us what is best for us because we will not choose it ourselves. God has to command to us what is best for us because we have shown that we will not choose it for ourselves. It's like unlimited vacation. Do any of you have unlimited vacation days? It's a very trendy thing, right? Sounds so cool. It's a marketing ploy, okay? Uh, seriously, because what is statistically true about unlimited vacation days is that people who have unlimited vacation take less vacation across the board. And not only do they, and I'm sure that's not true about our friends here who have unlimited PTO. I'm sure they take plenty of vacation, okay? But uh, not only do they take less vacation, but then when they're on vacation, they never stop working. Ever. 
People who have unlimited PTO report that when they are on their PTO, they are always still working. They're always checking their email. They're always engaged. So what some companies are starting to do, even who have gone to the, P to the unpaid or, well, the unlimited model, is they're reverting back to having a set number of vacation days. And they're saying that if you don't use them, you what? You lose them. They're commanding what is best for us in a way, right? They're saying, we are going to incentivize you to take these vacation days because less to yourself, you won't take them. Friends, that's the Sabbath. Is that Jesus is saying to us, I'm going to command, God is saying to us in the fourth commandment, I'm going to command you to do something that is good for you because on your own, you will not do it. But this limit, this stopping, that's what Sabbath means, stop, cease, is so necessary for who you are as a person. Because you will not mature spiritually unless you learn to rest. You won't. The essence of maturing is learning I'm a creation who is dependent on my creator. I have to respect that limit. I'm not going to know what it is to be delighted in by my heavenly father or to delight in my heavenly father unless I learn to rest. And so God commands it. But what we see is that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, had disfigured this command, this gift that God has given to his people. It's verses 23 and 24. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Or in chapter 3, he entered the synagogue, the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Do you see how ridiculous this is? Jesus, God himself, God incarnate, was present on the cosmic seventh day. What John 1 teaches us is that Jesus is through, through Jesus, the entire creation was created. He was the creator, right? And the Pharisees are saying to him, um, I think that you're breaking the Sabbath rules here. He created the Sabbath, right? This is ridiculous. Why are they doing this? What is happening? Well, what, what the Pharisees were doing is they were putting up fences around fences around fences. There is this command that God had commanded them, and they were saying, well, how do we stay away? How do we make sure we keep the command? Well, let's make sure we also do this and also do this and also do this, and then we won't even get close to breaking the command. This happened with a divine name, right? How do you make sure you don't commit blasphemy? You just never say the word God. So this happens, we see it in the transmission of the Hebrew text, is that there are places where God starts to be referred to by essentially like a nickname, and that was a way of saying we're never going to commit blasphemy because we're never saying his name. Missing the point. They had this huge track of Sabbath laws. There were 39 categories of different laws. One of them was that you couldn't reap, you couldn't harvest your grain on the Sabbath, and so as that got spelled out, what the disciples were doing and plucking the grain was a form of reaping. They're breaking the law. Or there was this whole thing about what happens, rabbis would talk about this, what happens when a house falls down? Can we rescue people on the Sabbath? Well, you can do things that are necessary so you can sort through the rubble to try to find survivors. If you find a dead body, leave it. If you find an alive person, you can pull them out. But if that alive person has a broken arm, you can't set it because that's not life-threatening. If they're gushing blood, you can patch them up, okay, because that's like, but you can't fix their arm because that can wait till tomorrow. And it's easy to be like, these jokers, right? These religious nutjobs, what are they doing? 
I would never. Okay, you would, first of all. Uh, second of all, the reason they're doing it is because the people of God were sent into exile because of the fact that they had broken all of God's laws. And so they're trying to figure out, man, we're gonna do our best to keep all these laws ourselves. And that, friends, is the heart of any religion, isn't it? What am, what am I gonna do to make myself right with God? What am I gonna do to make myself acceptable to God? so burdensome. You guys have experienced that, haven't you? The burden of all these things I'm trying to do to make myself right with God. And the irony of this whole situation, the irony of religion in the pro- when it's approached this way, is that we think that by setting up more limits, we're doing God a favor, when actually what we're doing by setting up our own limits is rejecting God's limits. So setting up our own limits is another way of rejecting God's limits because what God says in Ezekiel 20, 12, he says, I I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between me and them that they might know that I, the Lord, sanctify them. I gave them my Sabbath. I commanded them to rest so that they would know that they are made holy, that they're sanctified, that they're brought back into relationship with me, not because of what they do, but because of what I have done for them. Right there in Ezekiel, God is reminding his people, I have given you this command to remind you that I delight in you because I choose to delight in you. I've given you this command to remind you it's not because of what you have done, it's because of what I have done. And so by creating all of these extra limits, what the Pharisees are doing, what we do when we do that is we reject God's limit of saying, you can't sanctify yourself, but I will do it for you. And Jesus has come to tear down that structure because what that does to us, what creating those limits does is it hardens our hearts. That's what happens in verse four and five, verses four and five here. It says, Jesus looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart because legalism gives us hard hearts. It doesn't make us more alive, it makes us less alive. It kills us and it kills the people around us. That's what legalism does. And Jesus is angry about that. He's grieved at it, and he's coming. This isn't just against the Pharisees. Guys, this is, Jesus is for the Pharisees. Do you know that? He loves them. And what he's trying to do is to attack the legalism that they have grown so accustomed to, to pull their hands off from that and say, I have come to heal you, not because of what you have done, but because that's who I am. That what Jesus does in this passage is he restores the gift of the Sabbath. That's what this whole thing about uh, Abiathar the high priest is, is, is about. Jesus is not saying the law doesn't matter. What Jesus is saying is someone greater than David is here. And as the person who is greater than King David, I have come to deepen your understanding of the law. I've come here to tell you what it is fully about. And Jesus says, I am Lord over the Sabbath. I was there when it was created. I know what it's about. It's not about rubbing pieces of grain together. It's not about snacking. That it's about bringing wholeness and healing into your life. And so Jesus healing this man's crippled hand is a fulfilling of what the Sabbath was about to begin with. 
Because isn't that what happens when we remember how much God delights in us and we delight in him? It heals us. It reminds us what it means to be whole. It helps us to put down our striving. And Jesus says, that is the heart of the Sabbath. But he is not only Lord, he's not just Lord over it, he's Lord of it. And what Jesus is claiming here is ridiculous. He is saying, I am your Sabbath. I'm not just Lord over it, I am it. I mean, there, there are, this is so different from what our world tells us. Because there is an unlimited number of blogs and apps and articles and seminars and gurus that you can go to that will tell you how you can achieve rest in your life. And friends, I try the tricks, okay? I am not above it. Take a cold shower, I'll try it. Whatever I need to do to get rid of my nagging sense of anxiety, sign me up. What about you? And what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 is not come to me and I'll teach you how you can find rest for yourself. He says come. He says come to me and I'll give you rest. And it is not something that you can earn for yourself. It's a gift that you have to receive. And Jesus says, I want to give it to you. Will you receive it? Will you slow down? Will you stop and will you receive it? Because what did our Jesus say when he was hanging on the cross? What were his last words? <laughs> uh, you know him. Say it again. Say it loud. It's finished. Say it with me. It's what? It's finished, friends. It's finished. There is nothing, there is nothing that you need to add to the finished work of Christ to make God happy with you. Nothing. There is no amount of times that you will read your Bible that's going to make God more happy with you. He can't get more happy with you. It's finished. It's finished. It's finished. It's finished. And you have been given everything you need for life and godliness. You've been given it. You haven't earned it. You don't have to earn it. You can earn it. You've been given it. And he is with you always to the very end of the age. He is with you always until you see him face to face. And there is nothing you can do to earn that. It's true. It's a gift. And it's a gift because he delights in you. Because he is your rest. So would you stop once a week? Would you stop? Would you stop checking your email? Just stop. It will be there on Monday. I promise. All of the work that you believe has to be done today the work that you're going to do today to get ahead on the work for tomorrow, that's a lie, okay? That's not where the rest come from, so would, comes from. Would you stop? Once a, once a week, let's say Sunday, would you stop uh, 
doom scrolling on your phone? Or let's just say stop reading the news just for a day. Because I will tell you guys, the world is going to be just as broken tomorrow as it is today unless Jesus comes back. And you being aware of what is happening in Ukraine today isn't going to change it. You can be aware of it tomorrow. Just stop. Would you stop counting your steps for one day a week? I'm serious. Or your sleep. Or your calories. All of the things that you are tracking as a self-improvement project to make yourself a better, more whole person, they're, they're fine, I guess, but would you just stop for one day? Would you rest from all your efforts to improve yourself? Would you just stop? Would you stop trying to entertain yourself as a way of avoiding yourself? That when we are talking about stopping, we're not talking about watching Netflix for the entire day. That's just a way of avoiding ourselves. Would you just stop? And when you stop, would you learn to listen for the voice of your heavenly father who promises you that he is singing over you with love, who delights in you and is drawing you to delight in him. And friends, delight is not an efficient process. Delight cannot be done on a timetable because delight is about connection. It's about the joy of being with, of being together. So part of this delight, this slowing down, is you being willing to connect with yourself because Jesus is with you where you are, but you have to know where you are to be able to receive that. So on this day that we're taking to stop, to be delighted in, to delight in, would you, would, what does that look like? To connect with yourself. To take the time to connect with the Lord. However that is take the time to connect with the people around you, not to schedule all kinds of events back to back to back for yourself, but to slow down and connect with the people that God has put around you. And I will just tell you, as someone who is a recovering legalist, um, this practice of the Sabbath is just that. It's something that we practice, that we learn how to do, that we iterate on that changes in different seasons of our lives. Yes. At the end of this passage, Jesus talks about um, new wine and old wineskins. He says, you don't do it. You don't put new wines in old wineskins because it bursts the old wineskins. What Jesus is saying is, I've come to do a new thing. And I have brought freedom to God's people in an entirely new way. I'm here to remind you, Jesus says, to confirm for you, to achieve for you the fact that God delights in you and he is inviting you to delight in him. So don't go back to creating all these fences around fences around fences on the Sabbath. That is not what we're talking about, okay? Will you nod with me? Are you with me? That is not what I'm inviting you to this morning. Let me be very clear. It's not new legalism. It's that you would use the freedom that God has given you to rest instead of despising your limits, to accept and to delight in the fact that God has given them to you because you're delighting in him and allowing him to delight in you. Let me pray for us.
Oh, Father, we, I just confess, we, I hate my limits so often, Lord. Um, but you have not called me to be God and you have not called any of my friends here to be God. Lord, you are God. You are our Jesus who calls us, who says, come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And Jesus, we desperately need your rest. Lord, we need your rest from all of the religious rules we pile on ourselves. Lord, we need your rest from all of the self-improvement projects we pile on ourselves. Lord, we need rest from all of the ways that we reject our limits and pretend like they don't exist as a form of license. Lord, save us. Teach us to rest in you. And Lord, as we hear Caroline's testimony, Lord, as we respond to you in worship, would you draw us deeper into that rest even this morning? Amen. So Caroline is going to come up. Caroline is going to share with us uh, some of her own story and kind of her testimony of uh, what it's like to move out from this burden of legalism and into the rest of Jesus. wanted to take off my glasses so I can't see you guys. Um, I'm Caroline. Um, if you guys haven't met me, um, I would love to meet you guys. Um, so Matt uh, had asked me to share a little bit about pride, which is really fun. Um, <laughs> so this is actually a pretty humbling moment. Um, so before diving into my testimony, I think it's important that I paint a little picture of who I am so you can understand how I'm naturally wired. I asked a few people closest to me to share some one, uh, one word that they would describe um, about me, and this is what they came up with. Uh, they said some other things, but these are the ones that stood out. Uh, loyal, stubborn, truth seeker, hoarder of knowledge, challenger. It's all really great words, right? I'm super warm and fuzzy. Um, about a year and a half ago, I went on a walk with a biblical teacher to ask her about the role of women in the church. Now, I'm really about to put my pride on full display for you. Um, I wanted to go on this walk because I was struggling with what I believed about women's role in the church. And I wanted biblical proof to be able to show Matt in all the ways women need to be represented at Midtown West. Of course, that's not how the conversation went. Instead, this teacher straight up told me, you know who you remind me of in the Bible? And I'm thinking like, Paul, like she thinks I am just <laughs> this amazing person, David, you know, the usual people that you want to be known for. And she goes, the Pharisees. Yeah. I was, I, I was stunned. Um, and I got blisters on that walk, so that was hard. <laughs> Um, <laughs> sorry, uh, my heart's beating so fast I can't breathe. The person I <laughs> looked up to most just called me, Caroline, a Pharisee. I remember getting into my car after that walk and thinking, she's right. Uh, this moment was clearly when the Lord made it clear to me that he was leading me through a season of pruning, uh, and through the next six months, he was mercifully Sorry, Tom wrote this, or didn't write this for me, but that's why. <laughs> he, he edited it, and some words are just hard for me to say. <laughs> Revealing my pride to me. Um, whew, I wanted to paint this, <laughs> this little picture of some of my personality traits. 
So, um, oh crap. So you can better understand my role in my family. For much of my life, I have been the person that people in my family, parents included, came to when they needed debriefing, advice, or crisis control. And as, and as a recent example, over the past few years, my sister has been walking through a season of personal difficulty. And I often am the one trying to fix and come up with a plan to help her and my parents. Now, there's lots of factors that went into this role I had with my family. But ultimately, it was because I had a lot to do with the fact that I thought I knew what was best for her. It wasn't until the Lord used a conversation with Matt that I was reminded again of my pride, this time a little bit more gently. We were talking about my family and boundaries, and Matt told me I had boundary issues. Me, the girl who has been in counseling for nine years and has read the boundaries book like five times, I have boundary issues? No way. Matt then drew a, tri a triangle on his whiteboard in his office, and it was God, you, and the other person. He pointed to the line on the triangle between me and God and said, you have boundary issues with God. I had never thought about it that way. On one hand, I knew I wasn't doing the work for my sister, even though I proposed all sorts of paths of healing. But what I didn't realize is that in trying to make my sister and my family better, I was getting in God's way. I truly didn't believe that God cared more for my family and their eternity than I did. I didn't realize I was caring more about not being inconvenienced by their unhealth rather than my sister deeply knowing the Lord. As I walked through this season of the Lord showing me my pride, I began to realize that the seed of believing I knew what was best was deep-rooted. I began to look back at different relationships, friendships, theological debates, and more where I truly thought I knew best. I saw that I confronted people more with truth rather than love and was trying to be the Holy Spirit in their life to convict and change them. In those moments, I was putting myself in the place of God. You see, Matt was right. I did have boundary issues, and it was with God. Deep down, I didn't believe, just like the Pharisees in the passage, that Jesus knew what was best, right, and good. I would have been one of them blaming God for doing his work because it didn't look exactly the way I thought it should. I have had to release my death grip on control and surrender my pride to Christ. This side of attorney, I think part of me will always veered towards wanting to be in control and in the driver's seat, but the Lord is so faithful to put people along the way to make me aware of my need for him. Over the past year and a half, I have experienced freedom in him like never before. One of the best ways the Lord continues to remind me of his freedom in him is through you all in Thursday morning prayer, which, shout out, y'all should come to Thursday morning prayer because it's awesome. Um, but I am reminded that I need God, that while he doesn't need me, he does delight in seeing me, his daughter, grow closer to him and participate in bringing his kingdom to earth. I have brothers and sisters sitting with me, many of you guys, all of you guys, um, to remind me of his word, his goodness, and his promises, and to point me back when I try to take control and to be God. The best thing that has ever happened to me is realizing that I actually don't know what's best. <laughs>